Welcome to Wednesday Word, a Bible study led by Pastor John Jenkins of Northport Baptist Church. Well, let's turn over to Acts chapter 9. That's where we are as we have been studying the book of Acts. And I told you as we started Acts chapter 9, this chapter, for you and I anyway, is probably one of, if not the most important chapter in the Bible because you literally are in this room because Acts chapter 9 took place. Because, of course, Acts 9 is the story of Saul, a man named Saul, being saved radically and his life being changed forever. And then that man whose name becomes Paul, that nickname Paulus, he takes the gospel to the Gentiles. And for I think everyone in this room, that's who we are. We're Gentiles. So that's why we needed Paul to be saved in Acts chapter 9. And that's what happens. And it is miraculous and it is incredible and it is a great story. But it's not just a great story to look back upon. It's a great story for God to use in our lives to spur us to do exactly what Paul did because all of us are called to do exactly what Paul did with the gospel. We are to take the gospel and we are to share the gospel for the glory of God and for the magnification of that name, Jesus. And so we're going to look at this story just in depth as we have been the last few weeks, but there's just so much here. And I just want you to see the richness of God's word and how God's word ties all together. Because truly, here in Acts chapter 9, what we see is we see the beginning of the salvation process for the man named Saul. Now, I know when I talk about salvation, I know that even when you think about salvation, the way we think about salvation just in our minds is we think about salvation as something that happened. It's kind of like Acts 9. We're looking at when Paul was saved. That's what we're looking at. That's the Damascus Road experience here as Saul is going to Damascus to persecute the church. But please understand salvation is not something that happened to you in the past. Now, salvation is something that happened to you in the past, but salvation is also something that is happening to you right now in the present. And salvation is also something that's going to happen to you in the future. Okay, salvation is a process. It's not a one-time event. Now, all of us, I hope, in this room have a salvation experience like the Apostle Paul. All of us, at some point in our life, were able to see and to hear and to know Jesus Christ and to call upon His name as Lord and make Him Lord of our life. Okay, when we did that, that was through what? Faith, right? We put our faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so the theological term for that biblically would be we were justified. Justification through faith. That is kind of the way we see salvation. That is the event. That is the moment we become a follower of Jesus Christ. We're justified through our faith that we place in Him, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. We come to Christ through faith. Well, that is just the beginning. That is just the starting point of salvation because now all of us are living kind of in the present tense of salvation, which is our sanctification. And this is the process where God is taking you day by day, every moment of your life, every decision you make in your life, whatever happens, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, whatever it is, God is taking that 
and he is forming and shaping and molding you into the image of Christ Jesus. This is all this is, Romans 8, 28, Romans 8, 29. We love Romans 8, 28, right? Anybody know Romans 8, 28? Hope you know Romans 8, 28. Anybody want to quote it? Okay, you don't have to, but what does God do? What does God do? He works what? All things together for the good of who? It's those who loved him and are called according to him, his faith, okay? It's not for everybody. This is for followers, okay? God's working together for good for those who love him, okay? But then what does verse 29 say? For he chose us to become like his son. So whatever happens to you in your life is good because God makes it good, but the good in it is he makes you like his son. That's what he's doing. He chose you to become like his son, Christ Jesus. Okay, so that's sanctification. God is forming you, molding you, shaping you into the image of Jesus Christ. So that's where we're all living right now. And we're going to see that in Paul's life here in Acts chapter 9. Now, one day we are going to have a future tense portion of salvation because whenever Jesus Christ returns or whenever you take your last breath on this earth before he returns, then you're going to be glorified. You're going to be made like him. So that's glorification. That's the future tense of salvation. So salvation is a process, not just a one-time event. And so in this chapter, Acts chapter 9, we see some of the process in the Apostle Paul's life. And let me tell you, this is an important, an important process. So let me just ask you a question to kind of show you the importance of it. How many of you would say, just as a culture, as a nation, that we seem to be morally anyway, on a steep decline. And when I say steep decline, it's a really steep decline. Does anybody disagree with that? Okay, I don't think anybody disagrees with that. Okay, so here's the great question. Why, as a nation, are we going the direction we're going? And why are we seeing just morally just an incredible amount of things that most of us never thought we would see in our lifetime? Why are we on that path? Okay, that's a pretty good one. A godless society. That's Romans 1. I mean, it's just Romans 1, and that's part of being a godless society. I mean, that's the result of it. Okay, I'll take it further. Why are we a godless society? Ooh, that's pretty good right there. We haven't shared Jesus. We haven't witnessed like we should. Okay, let me back that up. Okay, this is a new statistic, but out of all the unchurched people in America, and there's a lot of unchurched people in America, right? Now that don't know what that equates to, but it's a lot. Because roughly on a Sunday morning, even here in the South, and what we consider the Bible Belt, really not the Bible Belt anymore, but what we would still consider the Bible Belt, do you know in Tuscaloosa County the percentage of people that will be in a church on a Sunday morning? No, not even close. Not even close. When I was growing up, which I know y'all think it's a long time ago. It wasn't that long ago. When I was growing up, the percentage would have been about 18 to 20%, and that would have been 25 years ago. Okay, we're 25 years down the road from that. So what do you think the percentage of people in church in Tuscaloosa County on a Sunday morning? It's about 10. It's around 10-ish. 
okay? Around 10% of our county, so you think of our population of our county, about 10% roughly, probably on a good Sunday, are going to be in church on a Sunday morning. So take that America-wide. There are a lot of unchurched people, right? Exactly. Okay, a lot of unchurched people. Okay, now listen to this statistic. Out of unchurched people in America, only three out of ten of those, only three out of ten have ever had the gospel shared with them one-on-one. -on -one. Think about that. Only three out of ten have ever had someone sit down and tell them about what God's Word says about Jesus and what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and what it means to be saved. Only three out of ten. So again, I ask you the question, why do you think we're in such a steep decline and why do you think our nation looks the way it does morally right now? And it's not a mystery, is it? It's not hard to diagnose the problem. Is the problem with the world? Is the problem with the unchurched? No. The problem's with who? The problem's with us, our faithfulness, our obedience, the call that God has placed on your life as a follower. Because if you read God's Word, you cannot deny Jesus Christ tells you, you need to go out and tell them about me. Does He not pretty much make that clear? I don't know how you can read the Gospels and not see that. It's there everywhere. Because that's what Jesus commands believers to do. And that's why He gives us the Holy Spirit of God to have the power to do that and the words to do that and the leading and the guiding to do that. Does that know what He does? That's what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus multiplied Himself in us in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. That's what He did. And we now, in turn, have to be obedient to His Word. And in Acts chapter 9, guess what you see? You see a man who was obedient. You see a man who was faithful because this man's life was changed forever. Right? And his name is Saul. And so I'm not going to read it all again because we've probably read it three or four weeks already, but you know what happens at the beginning of Acts chapter 9? Because this man named Saul hates the church. He hates believers. He hates followers of Jesus. And I told you before, at this point in his life, at the beginning of Acts chapter 9, he is led by Satan. And in my mind, he almost is demon-possessed if you read the Greek language. I mean, he is doing things that most human beings don't do, especially to people they don't know. I mean, you're not going to go out and just see somebody on the street and shoot them and kill them, right? Well, Paul would have done it. If he found out they're a follower of Christ, he's going to take them out. And if he can't take them out, he's going to take them back in chains and throw them in jail so they get what they deserve. That's his mindset. That's what he's doing. So in Acts chapter 9, he goes to the high priest and he says, hey, give me a letter so I can go even further and persecute the church even more. I'm going to go 140 miles away to a town called Damascus. I'm going to find any believer there and I'm going to bring them back in chains. And so the high priest, Annas, gives him a letter. And Saul is on his way to the synagogue there in Damascus to give the priest there the letter so that he has authority to do whatever he wants to do. And he would have had that authority. And so on his way, somewhere outside the city of Damascus, what happens to him? He sees what? He sees a light 
which is Jesus we know, but not only does he see, he hears a voice. And whose voice is it? It is Jesus' voice because Jesus says it's his voice, right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, was Saul persecuting Jesus? Was he crucifying Jesus? Was he stoning or flogging Jesus? Well, in turn he was because he was doing it to his bride, to his church, right? He was persecuting the church. And if you're persecuting the church, who are you persecuting? Not me. You're persecuting Jesus. That's the way he sees it. That's the way Jesus sees it. And then this is what happens next. <laughs> so if you're looking there, just look at verse 5. This is where we'll start reading. This is what Saul says. He says, Who are you, Lord? And this is the response. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Okay, now are those clear instructions? Pretty clear instructions, right? I mean, Jesus doesn't mince any words. He pretty much says, okay, this is what you're going to do. You're going to get up, you're going to go into the city, and you will be told what to do. Okay, now what does Saul do at this point in his life? He follows it. He does exactly what he's told, right? <laughs> exactly what he's told. Okay, now what's important here is just before this, the question he asked in verse 5 to Jesus Christ he says, who are you, Lord? Now that word is very important throughout the Bible. Okay? Now it's very important in the book of Acts. Do you remember what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, just listen to it. Verse 36, this is what Peter says, preaching on the day of Pentecost. He says, So let everyone know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Okay? So what does it mean for Jesus to be the Lord of your life? Because none of you can be saved without Jesus becoming the Lord of your life, right? Yeah. Is that true? You follow him. You do what he says. He's your, he becomes your master, your savior. He becomes your life. He's your Lord. Everyone who calls on what? The name of will be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10, 9, for you to be saved, what must you do with your mouth? You must confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. Lordship is crucial because you can call upon Jesus Christ to save you and not truly be saved. Because you might just want to be taken out of a bad situation. You might even want to be forgiven of your sins. But that's not salvation. Now that's a portion of salvation, but what must you do in turn with that? You give your life away. You give it over to someone and you make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. Now, I just want you to think about this from the context of most Americans, especially outside the South, that have never read the Bible, never heard many sermons about the Bible. If I go to them and tell them, you've got to make Jesus the Lord of your life, what are they going to look at me like? Like I'm crazy, like a calf at a new gate, right? What do I do with that? I don't know what to do with that. I don't even know what Lord means. How many of you use the Lord in everyday language that's not biblical churchy world? 
When's the last time you've used the name Lord? In just common sentences. In the grocery store, but is it in a church way? Uh, to some degree, it's in a personal way. Yeah. But I mean, we just don't use this in our language, in the English language, do we? So now think about this. When you tell someone about Jesus, when you share the gospel with someone, Jesus, you've got to make it where they understand it, right? When we were, I can remember this distinctly. When we were helping plant a church in Vancouver, and in Vancouver, Canada, you have all the world coming to Vancouver. There are so many nations represented there. It is crazy. And so the pastor of the church there at the time, Jeff, he was trying to teach salvation to them, and he's trying to teach lordship to them because lordship's an important part of salvation. And so he was trying to come up with a way to describe what it means to give your life over and for Jesus to be your Lord. And so this is the way he did it. This is the only thing he could come up with that they would understand just contextually where they were. And this is what he started saying. He's saying, you've got to make Jesus the boss of your life. Okay? Now, now think about this in the context of work. Most of us in this room, how many of us have had a boss that have been over us, told us what to do, we work for? Anybody ever had a boss? Yeah. Most of us have had a boss, okay? So if you have a boss, does your boss have control over you when you're at work? Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. He tells you what to do, right? You're accountable to him, right? You're led by him, right? He's your leader. He casts vision for you. He tells you what to do, whatever it is. Now, if you're a good employee, do you want to please your boss? Well, of course you do. You want to work hard and you want to please your boss and you want to do whatever he says so that he'll be proud of you. Hopefully so you get a raise, so you're blessed, different things. But we know what that means, right? What it means to be the boss of our life. Well, that's spiritually kind of what Jesus is, right? He's the boss of our life. He leads us. He tells us what to do. We want to please Him. And in turn, what does He do when we obey Him? Does He not bless us? Of course He does. Okay, so you got to think about when you share Jesus with someone who has no concept of the Bible, how you're sharing the Bible with them and words you're speaking. Because words matter. Because I'm just telling you, nine out of ten Americans ain't going to have a clue what you're talking about if you say, Lord. Right? Would you if you've never read the Bible? No, you wouldn't. So even though we know what the word Lord means and how important the word the Lord is in the Bible, you got to put it in a way that people can understand it. I mean, case in point, why am I reading the Bible to you in English today? Because we understand it. Right? Because we don't understand Arabic. Because <laughs> we don't understand Koine Greek. Or I could read it in Spanish. You wouldn't understand it in Spanish, right? You might catch one word out of a hundred. Okay? Well, one of us would, but okay, others, most of us wouldn't. <laughs> but is that not why the Bible's in English? Okay, so why do you think we translate the Bible into other languages? Same reason, right? I mean, I can go to Morocco and hand someone an English Bible. Is that going to do them any good? No. Not if they speak Reefy Berber, which ain't even Arabic. They can't even read an Arabic Bible. And so that's why we help translate the Bible into a language that had never been translated in the last few years. So that people can read the Bible and understand the Bible and know it in their own language. And this is huge for us to fulfill what God says to fulfill in Matthew 24, 14, what Jesus says there. 
because he says there before he's going to come back, what must happen? All the nations must hear. They must hear. Well, what must they hear? Faith comes by what? Hearing. Hear. Hearing and hearing the Word of God, the good news of Jesus Christ. So it's important that people understand words. And thank goodness in Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul understood who he was talking to. And he was talking to Jesus. And when Jesus spoke to him, he obeyed. Yes, sir? My translation has that Lord as a Lord. Based on. Does it? Mine doesn't. What, which version are you reading? Uh, New Living Translation. New Living, yeah. And, okay, this is a different context for that. Okay, in your Bible, for lordship there, going back to the Old Testament, what word is used for Lord, God, the Lord your God? It's Jehovah, right? Yahweh. We say it different ways, and we need to... We probably need to talk about this more, but this is a long discussion, in fact, especially the way the Jews viewed that word and would not even speak that word because of who they're talking about. And so that's what plays into this here. And so now here's the great question. In this context, when was Paul justified by faith? When was he saved? Is it here when he calls upon Jesus as Lord? Or is it later on in this process we're about to read about? Now, we don't know. I mean, I can't tell you for sure. But now think about some of the words that Paul writes later. Like Romans 10.9, like Romans 10.13, For anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Okay, what does Paul do right here? Does he call upon the name of the Lord? Does he call upon Jesus? Yes. Okay, he calls upon him, right? He does. Romans 10, 9. For you to be saved, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. What's he doing here? Is he confessing with his mouth lordship? Lord? Yes. So, I mean, we, there's a whole lot we can talk about here, how the Bible's translated, why it's translated, why words are capitalized, why words are not capitalized. And we probably do need to do a biblical competency class and how we got our Bible and why we got our Bible and how our Bible's translated because it does matter in so many ways. So it does. So, yeah. Others are and some aren't. It depends on what you're reading. So it's, I mean, it's an incredible to think about just all the things here. But, yes, ma'am. I got a question. Okay, ask. I've always, I've always thought about this. Uh, I don't use the word well, sometimes Jesus, but God, it sounds to me disrespectful to use his name. To use the name God? No, uh, Yahweh or Jehovah. Mm -hmm. Because even my father, I didn't call him by his name. I call him dad, you know. Mm -hmm. we, that's respect. What? Well, and that's why the Jews would not speak Yahweh in the Old Testament, and it becomes Jehovah is what they would speak, but they wouldn't speak the way it actually read in Hebrew, out of respect, out of fear for God. But now let's remember who God is to us, but through Jesus Christ and what He teaches us. Okay, He's our Abba. He's our Dad. 
Okay, so now do I believe you should have a fear for God? Yes, I believe you should definitely have a fear for God because I believe that's... Like I have for my father. Right. So I wouldn't call him by my father by his name. Well, but you had a different relationship with him. Yeah. Your father is a different relationship than I would have had with your father. Okay, the same is true for God. You have a different relationship for him. But do I believe biblically that it would be blasphemous for you to call God by Yahweh or Jehovah or Abba or all the things? No, I don't believe it is because God's our Father. He's our Dad. He's our everything. And so He loves us with a love that I can't even explain. And so I don't think it's blasphemous, no. I prefer say Lord or Father. Well, say, I mean, I, you prefer to say whatever you want to and what God lays on your heart. And I don't go around talking to God as Jehovah or as Yahweh or different things. But do I think that matters? No, I sing about it. There's songs I sing with Yahweh and Jehovah, and I worship Him as that because that's who He is. That's how He describes Himself in God's Word. I, I, I see. Yeah. Like in a song, you know. Yeah, so it's just, but I, I just don't get legalistic about that stuff, biblically at all. And, you, and I understand why people do, and I don't think it matters, though, to God and His heart. I mean, He knows your heart, and He knows where you're coming at from worship. So well, let's keep going on in the story just because I want you to see this because here's what I kind of want you to see. I want you to see here real quick because we don't have long. But I want you to see some of the similarities of the Apostle Paul's life here and what God does because it's very similar to the life of Jesus when they were both ordained into ministry. Okay, now I say that because... We know Jesus, before He started His earthly ministry, did He do very much on this earth that we know about? We really know one story, right? Yeah. I mean, we know one story as a teenage boy, kind of when He was becoming a man, really, is what we know about. But do we know anything else? Do we have any other miracles recorded in Jesus' life before He starts His earthly ministry? No. I don't know of any. There ain't any in the Bible, okay? Okay, do what? But it doesn't say before he started his ministry. Okay? And, and I can tell you what for sure that I know biblically what I'm saying. Because when did Jesus start his earthly ministry? After he was in the desert. After he's, in the after he's baptized, after he receives what? Okay? And then if you go read Acts 10.38, which we'll get to sometime. It's the next chapter, so hopefully we'll get there soon. But Acts 10.38 talks about this, and he says then Jesus did everything that he did after he receives the Holy Spirit. Only after, not before. And when does he receive the Holy Spirit? Luke 4, Matthew 4. Okay, and then God anoints him, sends him out, and he does everything that he does. Okay, what do you think is going to happen here for the Apostle Paul? The exact same thing. I'm telling you, it's the exact same thing. Look at verse 7. It's crazy. Okay, now, Paul was not alone on the road to Damascus because there were men with him going to do the same thing he was going. We don't know how many men, but we know they're men because it says the men with Saul stood speechless. They didn't know what to say because they heard the voice that Paul heard. They saw the... I mean, they didn't know what to do. And now Saul's laying on the ground, and he is completely, utterly blind. So this is what happened. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him. Ooh, that's a 
interesting word. His companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat and did not drink. Okay, so how did he get to Damascus? He was led, right? Because he couldn't see. He was led. Here's a great question for you biblically. How did Jesus get to the desert? Luke 4 tells us that. He was led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. Okay, now when Jesus got into the wilderness, what did He do for 40 days and for 40 nights? He didn't eat or drink. He fasted, right? Okay, now Paul is led to Damascus, and what did he do? He did not eat, nor did he drink. Now, it wasn't 40 days, but it's three days. But is this not... now? Think about this. How many times in the Bible do you see where people do not eat or drink? Now, that's hard to do. That'd be a rough three days. Now, none of you, please, I talk, I talk about fasting all the time. I tell you to fast all the time. Please do not even try a three-day fast not drinking. Sure don't try a 40-day fast without drinking because you're in trouble if you do that. Okay? You ain't Jesus. I'm just telling you that. You ain't Jesus. So don't try it. But even three days and three nights. Think about going three days and three nights without water, without any liquids. But this is what Paul did. Now, we don't know specifically why, but he's trying to seek God. He's trying to find God. Now, he's completely utterly blind. We'll probably talk about this more next week because this is pretty important biblically, being blind spiritually. <laughs> because, yeah, Paul's physically blind, but this is a bigger thing because it represents us spiritually, his blindness here. But he goes three days and three nights without eating or drinking. Then look what happens next because it's good. Verse 10, now there was a believer. Now the word here, depending on, does anybody have a Bible that says saint there? Disciple. The word really is the word we would use for saint, and this is the first time saint's used in the Bible. But I mean, it means believer, follower. It's what it means. But now there was a believer or a saint in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, the Lord, he replied. And the Lord said, Go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. And I have shown him in a vision a man named Ananias coming and laying hands on him so that he can see again. Okay, now, I want you to think about this guy named Ananias in Damascus, minding his own business, and God speaks to him and says, Ananias, I got a job for you. Now, if God speaks to you and says, I got a job for you, are you going to be excited? I hope you are. How many of you have had visions where God spoke to you? I mean, it doesn't happen all the time, right? I mean, this is pretty big. I would want to be, I'd be excited about this. Now, Ananias probably wasn't excited about this. Because Ananias, not only a believer, he's a leader of the church in Damascus. And who was Saul going to take out in Damascus? Leaders of the church. Okay, he's going to take them out. And Ananias knows this. But here's one other thing real quick I want you to think about. I want you to think about his name for just a second. Because we saw another Ananias in the book of Acts. A little bit earlier in the book of Acts. Do you remember Ananias from earlier? Ananias and Sapphira, remember that story? I mean, Ananias wanted people to believe he was something he was not. And so he lied to who? 
The Spirit of God is what the Bible says. He lied to the Holy Spirit, and what does God do? Takes him out, and his wife, too, when she lies. Okay, so that's kind of an ominous name, biblically, right? Well, we see another name here that's kind of ominous. What house is he told to go to? Whose house on Straight Street? That's not a good name either. Judas ain't a good name in the Bible either. What happened to Judas? He betrayed Jesus and then ain't too good for him either. Okay, so these are two biblical names that aren't good. But what two names does God use later on in the book of Acts to minister to a man named Saul, to ordain him to the gospel of Jesus Christ? God redeems those two names, Ananias and Judas. Now, I know they're two different people, and I know those are names used commonly probably in the first century there in Judaism. But isn't it interesting that it's those two names? I mean, you think that's coincidental? That's not coincidence. I mean, God can redeem anything, even a name. And I'm telling you, your name's pretty important. And sometimes your name's all you got. I used to be told that at my granddaddy all my life. I mean, your name's important, and when you lose the value of your name or when you do something that takes away your name and the reputation of your name, you're in trouble. But God can redeem that, right? I mean, he does it here. He redeems those two names. And this is what happens. Look at what Ananias says in verse 13. He says, but Lord. Have you ever said that? Yeah, you have. You've said it a lot. But Lord, no, I don't think so. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias. Now, he didn't just say it. He exclaimed it. I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest anyone who calls upon your name. What name is that? The name of the Lord, right? But the Lord said. Now, here's a great question. Who's talking to Ananias right here? The Lord, but... According to just earlier in our context, who is Lord? Jesus. Who's talking to Saul? This is Jesus speaking directly to Ananias. Directly to speaking. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to lead kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So now here it is, man... Paul's about to hear about his best life now, right? He's going to hear how God's going to bless him and going to give him a Cadillac and going to give him houses and mansions and anything his heart desires. That's what's about to happen to this old boy. God saved him. It's not what it says. What's Paul get for following Christ? Suffering. Suffering. There's a cost to following Jesus. Follow Jesus, what do you have to pick up? A cross. You pick up a cross. And so Paul's going to suffer, but why is he going to suffer? For the glory of the name Jesus. That's why he's going to suffer. And here's the great thing about Paul. He ain't suffering no more, is he? I mean, he is walking the streets of gold. And he is receiving a reward we cannot even fathom. Because on this earth, he suffered a little while, but he did it for the name of the Lord. So there's a great word here in verse 17, so. So Ananias did it. He did what he was told. He was faithful. He went and found Saul, and he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, 
Now, why does he say brother Saul? <laughs> now, at some point, some point before this, he's saved. Now, I think he's saved when he calls Lord there, but at some point in these three days, he's saved. Okay? He's praying to him. There's a lot here. He's, I believe he's saved in that moment on Damascus Road. But now... Ananias and Saul are brothers, even though Saul wanted to kill him just a few days earlier. They're brothers in Christ. He said, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and he was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and he regained his strength. I'm glad he ate some food, and I'm glad he regained his strength. But that's not what's important here. Do you know what's important here? He was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And I'll talk about more about this Sunday, if you'll be here Sunday. But this is the difference in Saul's life. It's the Holy Spirit of God. What was the difference in Jesus' life? Holy Spirit. Do you know what happens at the end of his 40 days, 40 nights after he defeats Satan with the Word of God, after he fasts. You know what happens to him? Not just filled with the Holy Spirit. He's filled, Luke 4.14, with the power of the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of Luke 4, it says he's led into the wilderness by the Spirit, but he comes out of the wilderness filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you read Matthew 4, do you know who comes and ministers to him? Angels come and minister to him. What happens here to Saul? Does someone come and minister to him? God sends someone to minister to him, right? He's hungry. He's weak. He's broken. He can't see. He don't know what's happening. But the church goes and ministers to him. And here's the amazing thing for us. Ananias is going to his enemy. That's who he thinks he's going to. Are we called to minister to our enemy and to share the name of Jesus with our enemy? You better believe we are. Does Jesus not tell us that? Of course he tells us to do that. And Ananias does it. And somewhere along the way, he realizes, well, he ain't my enemy anymore. He's my brother in Christ because Jesus miraculously saved him. And then Ananias lays hands on him. Same thing we do in church all the time. Why? Because we're praying for the power of God, the Spirit of God to move in their life. And what does God do? He moves. And Saul is filled with the power of the Spirit. And that's how we know says this at the end of verse 19. says, Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues and saying, He is indeed the Son of God. So think about it. He went to Damascus with a letter from the high priest Annas in Jerusalem to go to the priest there in the synagogue. Give me any believer you know about and I'm taking him back in chains. But the first time he gets to that synagogue in Damascus, what does he do? He preaches Jesus, right? Immediately he begins to preach Jesus. So here's a great question for you and me. What are we to do? The same thing. We're to preach and teach and tell people about Jesus Christ because that's what we've been called to do biblically. Every believer of Jesus Christ has been called to share. And in America, we have seven out of ten people Seven out of ten people who have never had a one-on-one -on -one conversation about Jesus. You walk by them every day. You see them every day in the grocery store, wherever you go. And what has God called you to do? Go tell them. Go share my name with them. 
that's what God's Word says to do. And until we do that, ain't nothing changing in our society. Nothing. Because the only thing that can change us is the same one that changed the Apostle Paul here in Acts chapter 9 and miraculously change a man's life forever. And if you want to talk about life change, life change happens in Acts chapter 9. We know Saul was saved. And that's the way we know anyone saved, through life change and only life change. Thank God his life was changed. Amen? And there's so much more there. We'll look more at it next week. But let me pray for us. Thanks for tuning in today. Join us next week as Pastor John continues the study. And if you're looking for more, find us at northportbaptist.org.